Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Indiana Athletic Trainers Association podcast, hosted by the Young Professionals Committee. The views and opinions expressed by speakers, guests, or others who have provided materials to and for this podcast are not necessarily those of the IATA. The IATA assumes no responsibility for, nor endorses any of the comments, recommendations, or materials that are provided. Do you need CEUs? Check out the IATA website, where you can find a link to EBP Central, working in collaboration with athletic trainers to continue Indiana's tradition of excellence. Thank you everyone for tuning in to the IATA podcast. My name is Daniel Welty. I am the IATA Young Professional Committee Chair and will be today's host of the IATA podcast. We are hosting a COVID-19 pandemic series where we will talk about how sports will, will return to play this fall, why athletic trainers should be in discussions about return to play, and what changes will need to be made to return student athletes back to sports this fall in a safe and healthy manner. On our previous episode in part one of the series, we talked specifically about the secondary school setting. And then today in part two, we're going to dive into the university and college setting. We are pleased to today to have Connor Burton on the podcast, who is an athletic trainer providing athletic training services in the college and university setting. Hi, Connor. Welcome to the show. Hey, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Connor, before we get started, um, would you mind introducing yourself uh, to the listeners today? Yeah, so like Dan said, uh, my name is Connor Burton. I work in the college and university setting um, at Indiana State University, uh, getting ready to start my fourth year uh, here at ISU, my first two years, I was a graduate assistant, um, and then I've been a full-time staff member for a little over a year now. Um, so kind of what's led to uh, where we are today um, in the midst of everything going on relative to COVID-19, I've been pretty heavily involved in uh, developing a lot of the policy and procedure here at ISU uh, related to our resocialization of student-athletes uh, this summer and this fall. Um, so just here to share a little bit of my insights uh, regarding that. I guess I don't really have any um, disclosure or I don't have any conflicts of interest uh, to make. My only disclosure would be that uh, the information that I talk about today uh, won't, be won't be representative of uh, Indiana State University. It's just gonna be my own thoughts um, based on all of the uh, self-education uh, and research that I've done probably over the last three months uh, in preparation to bring uh, student athletes back safely to ISU. Great. Thank you so much, Connor. Um, I know that you mentioned that you'd done some collaboration and preparing, you know, for returning back to sports this fall. Not only have you collaborated with um, athletic trainers here in the state of Indiana, but I'm sure you've collaborated with um, athletic trainers and the schools within the same conference as ISU. So could you talk a little bit about um, your collaboration and communications that you've had with um, other universities? Yeah, so we've we've tried to kind of adopt a, a systematic approach uh, to that here at ISU. Just we all know that everyone's um, pretty busy right now getting ready for the the resocialization of student athletes. We wanted to make sure we were uh, collaborating with others in a manner that respected our time. Um, so kind of my my specific duty over the last month and a half or so has been uh, being involved in kind of a peer work group with um, other college and university athletic trainers in Indiana. Um, our director of sports medicine, he's been in 
in conversations with uh, representatives from the Big Ten, the Pac-12, uh, the SEC, and, and the ACC. Uh, I've talked a little bit with some of the Big East athletic trainers, um, and then our football athletic trainer. Uh, he's been the one who's been having conversations with our our conference, the Missouri Valley. Um, so we've tried to kind of, like I said, divvy it up so that, that way it's not just one person communicating with everyone because that can result in a lot of meetings when you're involved with a lot of different organizations. Um, and then we just meet as a staff um, on a weekly basis or if we need to have uh, more regular meetings, we've been meeting sometimes twice a week to kind of update on what information we've been gathering and how it might impact or uh, enhance the policies that we already have in place. Is there anything that you guys have learned through that process, um, you know, kind of meeting together and maybe some good information obviously coming back, but maybe some more, maybe a big thing that you guys have learned by doing that process together? Yeah, I think, I mean, for one, the biggest thing that I've seen is um, that everyone's uh, situation is going to be a little bit different. So obviously when we're talking with uh, athletic trainers in the Big Ten, we're talking about off the top of my head, um, over half a dozen different states are represented and every state's going to have its own um, phasing process or phasing policy that um, organizations are going to have to follow to meet those state guidelines. Uh, so like Indiana's is going to be uh, different from Ohio's and will be different from Maryland's and Pennsylvania's. Um, so I think first and foremost is everybody's uh, policies are going to be a little bit different because they're going to have different umbrellas that they have to fall under. Um, and then I think too, there will be obviously be uh, a difference in resources uh, that each university can offer. So, uh, for example, here at ISU, we uh, wouldn't have a budget that would allow us to um, likely test student athletes on a weekly basis throughout the season, whereas might be seeing in the recent media that a lot of the uh, Power Five schools are, are talking about testing their student athletes on a weekly basis to find out um, if they're being exposed and kind of use that as a prophylactic measure. Uh, to decrease any outbreaks within the athletics community. So, I mean, really it just what it comes down to is it, it allows for a good opportunity to share ideas, but um, at the end of the day, you have to be able to fit all those different ideas into what's going to work best uh, within your organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's kind of dive into kind of maybe some specifics here and talk about um, what you guys have talked about and maybe other, some other things that you've learned um, from those conversations. Um, let's first start with just identifying people that are at risk, um, whether it's they shouldn't be participating in sports or maybe, you know, that specific day they're maybe at risk. I don't know, maybe talk about some, maybe some risk factors or maybe some individuals that might disqualify people this fall due to COVID-19. Yeah, so I'm gonna do my best as we're going through uh, this today to uh, reference uh, resources throughout each different, I'll just call them little segments that we talk about. Uh, and then at the end, I'll kind of run through a long list of uh, resources that people can use. But um, to specifically answer this question, um, the CDC uh, provides probably the best guidance on determining who's considered an at-risk individual. Um, also, the NCAA um, put out a very good uh, statement on the core principles that they have for the resocialization of student athletes, uh, where they identified at-risk individuals within the athletic population, um, and a lot of their guidance reflects the CDC. That was the, the big uh, resource that they referenced. Um, but there are about uh, 10 to 12 different 
health conditions that the CDC recognizes as someone being more at risk for one, uh, acquiring COVID-19, and then two, also having a more serious uh, ailment if they were to contract the virus than someone who's considered uh, otherwise healthy. Um, so the biggest one, um, or one of the biggest ones that we'll probably see within athletics is gonna be asthma. Um, and the important determination in that is it uh, has to be classified as moderate to, to severe. Um, and so according to the research, we actually don't consider exercise-induced as asthma um, a risk factor for COVID-19. So if they only have to use a rescue inhaler um, during exertional activity, uh, then they aren't uh, classified as having moderate to severe asthma, and so they would not be considered at risk. But if you have someone who's using uh, a daily regimented uh, inhaler um, to kind of help mitigate any uh, asthmatic episodes, or someone who uh, has been hospitalized from an asthma attack in the past, um, that's going to be something that you would definitely want to have further conversation with uh, a supervising physician uh, to make the determination of what category of asthma that they fall into. Um, there are also going to be some conditions that don't really apply to uh, our student athletes or our patient populations. So like obviously um, being the age 65 and over, um, we won't have any student athletes who fall into that category, but we might have coaches uh, or support staff that we work with or administrators. And so I think it's also our duty uh, to not only educate the student athletes that there's going to be individuals around them who are at higher risk. So they should be not only protecting their own health, but the health of those around them, but also we can uh, educate our, uh, the support staffs around us if they um, are considered an at-risk individual and give them guidance uh, on how they should navigate that. And obviously, uh, universities should have policy on that relative to the HR department uh, on if they're allowed a, mod a modified work schedule to decrease their risk of acquiring COVID-19. Uh, some of the other ones that I'll just run through quickly that aren't always as um, ap applicable to student athletes, uh, chronic kidney disease, chronic lung disease, um, which asthma would fall under chronic lung disease, but then we're also talking about um, emphysema and also chronic sleep apnea are two other conditions that fall under chronic lung disease. Um, diabetes is another one uh, that's considered at risk. So if you have student athletes with diabetes, that's a consideration that needs to be made. Um, and then hemoglobin disorders. Uh, so we'd be talking about sickle cell disease, uh, but not sickle cell traits. That's It would be important to differentiate um, which classification of sickle cell anemia a student athlete would have um, to see if they're an at-risk individual. Um, anyone who's immunocompromised, so if, if they've been on corticosteroids uh, to help control an ailment for a long period of time, that's gonna suppress their immune system. Um, anyone who's received chemotherapy or had an organ transplant or bone marrow transplant, uh, which I found interesting is uh, in athletic training, we probably don't always ask those kind of converse or those questions during our physicals. Um, so I think this is uh, an error that we're in that should help us um, add additional uh, previous medical history questions to our physicals um, for just future reference for us to know these kind of things that might put someone at more at more risk um, of a serious health condition. Uh, and then another thing would just be heart conditions. So this is going to be structural or functional heart conditions. If someone who has uh, un uncontrollable hypertension. So if they're either not compliant with taking blood pressure medication uh, or blood pressure medication doesn't control their high blood pressure well, they would be considered an at-risk individual. Um, someone who has a history of heart failure, uh, coronary artery disease, uh, or heart disease would also fall into that category. And then also 
uh, cardiomyopathies. So we, a lot of times we think of the classic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, in athletics, just um, how it by obviously it can be congenial, but also that extreme level of um, exertion that individuals can do can lead to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But then there's also uh, three other types of um, cardiomyopathy, which aren't quite as applicable to athletics, but you can find further information on those on the CDC website. So let's say you did have a patient that had diabetes or has asthma, not exercise induced, but just asthma. What kind of conversations are you having with those, are going to have with those individuals? And are they, is that maybe a disqualifying factor for, you know, maybe this fall and this winter season? Um, could you talk maybe a little bit about that or maybe some conversations you've heard from across the state or within at ISU? Yeah, so I think the first place it starts, so we we developed a um, at-risk individual screening tool um, a few weeks ago, and then two weeks prior to any student athlete or uh, support staff member coming back to campus, um, we had to do a one-on-one -on -one phone interview with them and run through those questions to help identify if they are at risk. Uh, obviously, like I mentioned, some of these medical health questions don't get asked in physical, so we could have even discovered uh, information about student athletes that we previously didn't have because we just simply didn't ask those questions and they might not have come up during their PPE. Uh, so if someone was identified at that um, two-week mark prior to coming to campus, uh, first obviously we um, kind of educated them and let them know that they fell into an at-risk category. Um, and then we do have a policy in place for those individuals. So here specifically to ISU, um, we have our own uh, four-step phasing process that we're using um, that actually started last Monday and uh, individuals who are classified as at-risk are uh, not allowed to use our facilities until we reach phase three uh, which is going to be the, the middle of July and so that kind of allows us an opportunity to know that uh, those members of the athletic community who have come back to campus they've had uh, five weeks um, being integrated into that uh, environment and so it can give us a pretty good idea of how safe the environment's going to be for those at-risk individuals. Um, but I think you do bring up a good point when you mentioned uh, is it a temporary um, restriction for at-risk individuals? Should there be consideration of them uh, potentially missing an entire athletic season? I think it's I think it's tough to say obviously I think a lot of that's going to depend on um, what the institution, what their guidance is that they put out. Uh, and also it's probably gonna base a lot on what the trends are both locally and nationally uh, relative to COVID-19 cases. I think if we're, if we're seeing high outbreaks within athletics as things continue to um, kind of ramp up here over the next month or two, then I think it might be a conversation to have with that student athlete and also with the team physician uh, and just decide one, what, what the student athlete is comfortable with, uh, kind of educating them on the percentages and what the likelihood is that they might, one, contract COVID-19 and two, have a serious ailment from it. I think the, one of the latest research articles I read said that if you have uh, two or more comorbidities, so if you would have two or more of the, uh, at, or fall into two or more at-risk categories, um, then you, your likelihood of developing severe ailments from COVID-19, I think, was between like 15 and 28%. Uh, whereas someone who's otherwise healthy uh, and a young age individual, it might be less than 1% uh, having severe complications. So I think that's 
something that our patients deserve to know uh, is what level of risk they might be at, but then also it, obviously there needs to be discussion within the medical staff as well to help make that decision too. It definitely sounds like there's going to be a lot of patient education, especially with those that are having diabetes or asthma or any comorbidities. Um, could you also talk about maybe some more patient education that uh, that ISU or you've heard across the state um, and or other uh, conferences um, that you guys are going to do from a patient education standpoint, standpoint, not just those high risk individuals, mm -hmm. but all, all patients that we're providing care to. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the patient education aspect is going to be a huge part of this. I mean, you think about the whole idea of uh, the more we know about something, it's more likely that we're going to be uh, following best practices, understanding the, the severity of the situation that we're in. Um, and that's actually a lot of the guidance from um, not only the CDC, but uh, the NCAA as well, is uh, that we should be providing thorough uh, education to our student athletes um, as we start to resocialize them back into uh, the athletic environment. So we've kind of developed a three-phase uh, education process at ISU. So we have um, educational materials that student athletes started to receive um, in the two weeks leading up to their return to campus. Um, we have information that they're receiving the first week that they arrived to campus, and then we have ongoing uh, education and, and reminders that they receive um, indefinitely while they are um, back within the athletic community. Uh, so some of those topics include um, like best practices on social distancing, uh, hygiene and hand washing. Um, we kind of gave them a, an overview and made an infographic of what the basics of COVID-19 are. So like symptoms to watch for, um, symptoms that uh, are recommended by the CDC to uh, seek out immediate medical attention because you might be considered to be uh, having a severe ailment from COVID-19, um, how it spreads. So we talk with them about uh, like physical contact, um, close contact and proximate contact, um, educating them on uh, how it's spread through air droplets. Um, and then that's why we have social distancing measures in place, why we're asking you to wear a face covering, uh, wash your hands so regularly to help mitigate uh, the transmission uh, of this virus. Um, obviously, we've given education on at-risk individuals, not only just to those at risk, but then also uh, to other members of the athletic community so that they can be empowered to help protect um, their peers as well if they are an at-risk individual. Uh, and then we just updated them on what our phasing process is so they know what the restrictions are within each phase as well as um, helping them understand uh, how to navigate shared housing. So a lot of them are going to live with either teammates or another student athlete or sometimes even just a general student who's a friend of theirs. Um, so helping them know uh, you should be cleaning surfaces regularly. You should try to avoid uh, being in shared living space at the same time, um, things like that as well. And then we just gave them a pre-arrival checklist uh, of maybe some resources and things that they should bring with them to campus, such as disinfectant products, because uh, I don't think every school is going to be able to provide all of those resources to every individual member. Um, so just helping them know what kind of things they should bring to campus and if they can't, like for example, if they can't find uh, an approved disinfectant, you can uh, make a, a bleach solution out of bleach and water that still uh, meets the guidelines for uh, sanitization. Yeah, a lot of uh, patient education there and um, I'm sure they're, they're overwhelmed maybe a little bit and um, 
obviously with that education is going to be those screenings um, on a daily basis. So each um, in the college and university setting, we kind of break it up sometimes by team. Um, you know, you got the football team, you got the soccer team, you got the basketball team. And so, um, you know, each university is going to, like you said in, in the beginning, kind of every university is going to be a little bit different based upon the number of staff and those types of things. But what are some ways that you guys are going to be doing that daily screening? Um, and are you going to be doing a daily temperature, multiple temperatures a day? I guess, what's that process that you guys have talked about or heard across the state? Yeah, so like you said, uh, every university is likely going to do things a little bit different based on what they have access to. Um, I think ultimately, I mean, you'll hear some conversation if you people who have been reading uh, a lot of the, the stuff in the media right now, there's actually a couple of larger institutions who are kind of uh, against the idea of daily screening or at least at least daily temperature screening. Uh, one, because if we're only if we're not catching it until they have symptoms, we know that uh, there is an infectious period two days prior to symptoms developing. So, for example, we we're doing screening today here at ISU, and this is a Monday that we're recording this. Um, so if somebody came in today and reported symptoms, then anyone they were with, if their symptoms started today on Monday morning, then anyone they were with yesterday and anyone they were with Saturday is now considered a close contact um, because you're actually infectious two days prior to your symptoms starting. There's actually some schools that feel like uh, daily screenings isn't enough because we're going to miss out on that two-day window of opportunity. Uh, and I think that's where some of the justification for regular testing comes into place. But then you also have the conversation of the tests aren't quite as reliable as we'd like, where uh, upwards of 30% of tests are going to be a false negative. So it's where it's going to tell you that you don't have COVID-19, but you could actually still have it. Um, I mean, so there's ups, there's pros and cons to, to both arguments, really. Um, but for us, uh, we think that the daily screening is a good prophylactic measure because it's going to allow us to uh, know who is who is safe that day to enter a facility from a symptom standpoint. Um, obviously, we won't know if, if they're just in that infectious period prior to symptoms starting, but we at least know if they have uh, active symptoms going on. Um, but kind of what that looks like for us right now is we have a centralized screening location um, that's open from 6.45 a.m. until noon every day. Uh, and the student athletes who are on campus uh, right now, which is football and men's and women's basketball, uh, they have an assigned screening time where they come and get, they get screened. Um, that's, that's a physical temperature screening daily. And then they are supposed to fill out uh, a survey that we have prior to coming to campus. Uh, where they're asked if they have any of the symptoms of COVID-19, if they've been around anyone with symptoms, um, if they've been around anyone who's been diagnosed with COVID-19, um, and if they have um, ignored social distancing uh, advice outside of the uh, ISU athletic facilities. Um, and the way we have that set up is I'm kind of the, the contact tracer right now for our um, sports medicine staff. So I actually get it a real-time notification for anyone who puts an affirmative answer on their survey. Um, and if I, if it's someone that, or if it happens at a time of the day where I'm available, then I'll call them, uh, talk with them about their symptoms. We obviously ask them not to come to campus until um, their case is uh, vetted a little bit more, starting with the conversation with one of our staff members and then collaboration with our team physician. 
Um, if I'm unavailable, then I just uh, get in touch with the athletic trainer for that uh, patient population and have them reach out to the individual and start the initial conversation. Um, and then from there, obviously, there might be contact tracing involved if we think it's a suspected case. So, um, and I think we're going to be talking about contact tracing here soon, so I won't get too much into that right now. Um, but essentially, we're, we want to just try to identify those who shouldn't be in a facility. So once they've filled out their survey, uh, if everything comes back good on the survey and their temperature is satisfactory, then what we do is we're giving everyone a wristband for the day. So you can see I'm, I was good to enter the facilities on campus um, today. And this wristband's good from the first time I walk on campus until uh, my workday ends. So you don't have to get, re like if you go home to eat lunch, you don't have to get rescreened. Uh, when you come back to campus because we we feel like we've educated enough um, on proper social distancing that no one would have exposed themselves in that short amount of time that they went home to eat lunch. Uh, so it's just a one-time pass for the day. It'll allow you to come and go um, as you need to. And that's kind of the process that we're using right now. And then I think in the fall, what we're probably going to do uh, as more student athletes return is we're going to have uh, satellite screening sites and everyone's going to be responsible for screening their own individual team because once we have 450 student athletes back on campus it's not going to be feasible to have one location where they're all standing in a line at different times throughout the day and potentially uh, being too close to each other even if we have six feet uh, markers uh, it's just a lot of people to have in one area so we'll have to revisit that conversation in the fall and decide where our satellite screening facilities will be Let's talk about contact tracing because um, you you brought it up. Um, you know, this is something that I kind of look at and go, "Wow, this could be a, a huge job just to do." I mean, looking at um, now that, at least in the state of Indiana, uh, we're we're basically functioning at almost 100% capacity with um, obviously doing social distancing, wearing face masks, those types of things. Um, so a lot of student athletes could be out doing other things, interacting with a lot of different individuals. So what kind of contact tracing or what kind of things that are you guys doing um, to try to just make sure that you're getting in touch with those individuals that may have been in contact with someone with a possible positive COVID-19 case? Yeah, so obviously, like you said, it can become a very robust um, process depending on who an individual has been around, if they're a suspected or diagnosed uh, case of COVID-19. Um, and I don't think here at ISU we're going to see the full extent of what that, that contact tracing process could look like until we have more individuals back on campus. So you kind of referenced the, uh, the state guidelines and how at this point, uh, the end of June, we're pretty close to um, being back to full capacity. Um, here at ISU, we actually set our, our uh, protocol up to where we're always one phase behind uh, what the state is at. That way we know if we can see if the state is having a, um, a, a poor trend at a certain phase. We're one phase behind that and we can decide, hey, is it safe for us to advance to our next phase or should we stay in, in phase two, for example, uh, and wait to see kind of how the state reacts to um, making modifications to bring down any um, increased number of cases uh, within the state community. Um, but specifically to contact tracing, uh, I actually took a course this summer through John Hopkins University on um, how to become a, a certified contact tracer uh, for pretty much for individuals who wanted to seek out a, an additional um, 
employment option. Obviously, there's a lot of things going on relative to layoffs and furloughs. So they, and obviously they're early on and still there's a need for a lot of individuals to serve as uh, Department of Health contact tracers to help um, mitigate the spread of, of COVID-19 across the country. Uh, so John Hopkins put together a, a free course um, for individuals to become certified contact tracers. Uh, I think it was like the first 150,000 people that took it, got to take it for free. Um, so I took that just to kind of educate myself. Uh, and then that kind of led to me becoming the pinpoint person here at ISU. Um, so if we have someone who goes through the screening process and we have suspicion that they could be uh, a COVID-19 case, uh, the first step is we talk with them. Uh, we figure out what they've done. First, we figure out when their symptoms started. And then we figure out what activities they were involved in the two days prior to that and who they've been around. Um, and I think the really important thing to preface here is, uh, before we dive into it more, is my recommendation or suggestion would be that uh, in the, at the college and university level, uh, we should really only be contact tracing uh, individuals within our community that we work with. So for me, for example, we only will be contact tracing uh, within the athletics community. So if someone is a suspected or diagnosed case, we're not going to call their family. Uh, and contact trace them, That's uh, that job belongs to the Department of Health. Um, and we don't want to uh, get into their business and kind of slow down their process. Um, so we will just be contact tracing teammates, other student athletes, um, support staff here at ISU, who will obviously, as long if their names are brought up to the Department of Health, they're gonna be involved in the formal contact tracing. But we feel like because we know the intricacies of our organization so well um, that we can uh, quickly identify where people have been because we're using a sign in and sign out process uh, with each of our facilities right now just to know timestamp wise where people have been at what time and what day. Um, so, and not that I, I don't think the Department of Health's process is inefficient, but obviously in areas where um, outbreaks are more significant, they might have a lot more on their plates. And so we can likely. Uh, communicate through our community a lot faster and help decrease any secondary contacts from the initial um, suspected or diagnosed case. So once we know who they've been around, then we contact those individuals individually um, and kind of inform them that they've been exposed to someone. Um, we currently aren't telling them who it is just because of uh, HIPAA guidelines. Um, we're talking about making a uh, release of information that would allow a student athlete to essentially give us permission to use their name. That way we can make the contact tracing uh, process a little bit more thorough instead of just saying, hey, when you were at this location, you were exposed. We could say anytime you've been around, like if you've been around so-and-so in the last two days, um, they've given us permission to let you know that, that they uh, are a suspected or diagnosed case um, and you've likely been exposed to the coronavirus. Um, so that's another conversation to have relative to releases of information. Um, but we had to use our contact tracing policy a couple times already. Uh, none of them have been for diagnosed cases. It's just been for um, suspected cases or people who have been uh, potentially exposed to a COVID-19 case that originated outside of athletics. Um, but we just obviously doing that from prophylactic standpoint, even if it's just a suspicion or they might have symptoms that aren't specific to COVID-19, we want to make sure we do our part to uh, not have an outbreak. So we're being pretty conservative um, 
or sorry, we're being pretty aggressive right now with, with how we manage those things just because we don't want to take any chances. So it kind of sounds like you're managing your contact tracing kind of within ISU, within mm -hmm. athletics, your community. Um, is there anything that you possibly say to that patient that's maybe they, for a student athlete, for example, maybe they went home for a weekend and interacted with their family, or maybe they were out doing something else. Is there any recommendations like as far as should they tell their family or should they tell other people? Obviously, I think you're, I think you're under the right boat. You know, you could, you could go all day long contact tracing one person and, and go on and on and on. But is there any recommendations that you're giving or any education to that patient to say, hey, let those people that you know that you've interacted with, that you had a symptom just so that they're safe as well. I don't know if it's in discussions or anything. Yeah, so we, we pro we've got uh, two things that we're kind of doing and one is, is what you mentioned. So obviously uh, when society is in the midst of a, uh, a pandemic, we, we all have a public health responsibility to uh, notify others when we are suffering from uh, an infectious ailment such as COVID-19 um, to do our part to protect the rest of society. Um, so that's a conversation that we have about they should be that they should consider notifying um, individuals that they've been around. Uh, but then too, we also um, ask them to start making a, a list of or essentially like a manifesto or a roster of individuals that they have been around two days prior to their symptoms starting. Um, because if we're the first ones to contact them, it's inevitable that uh, once that if they are diagnosed with COVID-19, once the Department of Health uh, receives that information that they are a positive case, they're going to be contacting them to do their contact tracing process. So we've just kind of encouraged people, or we will encourage people, if and when we have a positive case, um, that they should be uh, making a list of the people they've been around so that when the Department of Health calls, they don't have to sit there and kind of jog their memory over the phone. They already have a list of every person they've been around um, and also um, writing down places they've been outside of their home um, so that the Department of Health could use that information as well uh, as they contact other individuals to notify them if they need to enter quarantine or not. Great, thank you. Um, now let's talk about kind of COVID-19 true testing. Um, you know, when are you guys going to say, you know, I've heard of some universities that, like you said, kind of the power five conferences are going to maybe maybe test once, twice a week um, with actual COVID-19 tests. Are you guys going to do any of that, any random testing or uh, when you have a suspected case, when, when is it deemed necessary to have that individual go get tested? Yeah, so we've had a lot of conversations relative to uh, prophylactic testing, um, especially in light of uh, what the media has highlighted in the last six or seven days about the policies from, um, obviously the media always focuses on uh, the Power Five conferences when it comes to talking about uh, anything relative to athletics. Um, they get a lot of the spotlight being the larger institutions, uh, but we've had a lot of conversations here at ISU as we've seen a lot of those policies and procedures from other universities uh, start to become public. Um, and we actually have a, every Monday our ISU task force um, meets and discusses kind of updates on where we're at, what new information we've acquired, um, 
and how that could potentially impact the policy and procedure that we've already had approved. And then if we rewrite anything, obviously that will have to be voted on and approved by the university. Um, but the conversations that we've kind of had is uh, at this time, especially with the small number of student athletes that we have on campus, uh, so men's and women's basketball, they've been, they've been allowed to bring back um, any student athlete who's not at risk right now. Um, and then football has been allowed to bring back 60 of their, um, I want to say somewhere around 95 man roster, 105 man roster, however many student athletes they have on the team. Um, and that allows us to utilize our facilities uh, to the capacity that we can right now based on the restrictions that we have in place. Uh, and then through each phase, we'll gradually integrate more student athletes. But we feel, um, based on the screening process that we did pre-arrival to campus and then the daily screening, uh, that at this time we don't need to do prophylactic testing. Um, we had every student athlete complete a 14-day quarantine uh, prior to coming on campus. So today is the first official day, uh, June 22nd, that student athletes at ISU can begin um, working out and utilizing facilities on campus. Uh, so leading up to today, they completed a 14-day uh, stay at home. Um, so even if they had um, COVID-19, it would have um, passed through their symptom or through their system in that 14-day period, and they would no longer be uh, contagious um, coming to campus on uh, June 22nd today. So that's kind of why we felt like we didn't need to do that testing. My, these are my personal views that I'm about to say, so it doesn't represent ISU, but I for one feel like regular testing or at least testing when people first come to campus. Um, you, you hear some of these universities that they do a 14 day quarantine and then they either test before starting the quarantine or after. Um, I'm kind of of the mindset of if you're already having them go through a quarantine to where um, COVID-19 would have uh, passed through their system and they'd no longer be contagious. I think it's kind of a waste of healthcare dollars and resources to complete testing if you're already having them stay home for 14 days. Uh, obviously, some of that could be a uh, kind of a PR thing where the public's finding out that the university's doing this to protect their student athletes. Um, and it also gives a lot of peace of mind to the athletic community if they know individuals have been tested. Um, but one, we know the the false negative rate is upwards of 30%. So that test might not have even been reliable anyways. And two, if they're staying home, the, someone else could have probably utilized that test uh, that actually needed it. I know we're obviously we have a lot more tests now than we did before, uh, back in March. Um, but that's just kind of my personal standpoint. I feel like as athletic trainers, we have a duty to prevent healthcare costs within the healthcare system. So that's my little rant on uh, testing when people already have a quarantine or a stay-at-home process in place, but I think there is a place for regular testing if it's if it's something that can be done because that's going to help um, serve as a preventative measure throughout the season. Obviously, when people are practicing every day, uh, whether it be full contact or or um, in a limited capacity throughout the season, and then obviously coming back from a road trip, you've been exposed to an entirely new athletic community. Um, competing in competition. So I can see where the need for regular testing uh, can be very beneficial to those that can afford it uh, within their athletic budget. So I guess when do you say that a patient needs to go get tested? Are you guys saying, hey, like because you have, you know, on the screening that you have, you know, you said yes to two of these things on the screening. Um, do they need to go get tested or how, how is that process going to work for you guys on that end? 
Yeah, so um, our first step uh, is obviously to, once we see the results of their screen, uh, or if they have a fever when they report to campus, uh, we ask them to go home. We complete a telehealth appointment with them so that there's no, it decreases the number of physical contacts um, on campus. Uh, we get the full history of, of the case, and then we ask them to stay at home while we talk to our team physician. Uh, ultimately, our team physician gets to make the decision um, relative to who gets tested, and, and he has a lot of uh, resources that he's using relative to the, C the CDC, the State Department of Health, uh, and also um, Union Hospital where he works as far as um, guidance on who should get tested and who, sh who might not need to get tested but should ha uh, have their symptoms monitored um, over the subsequent days. Um, so like for example, if someone were to report to campus with um, a headache and um, let's just say like a, a cough, um, maybe some fatigue or some body aches. Uh, yeah, it could be just a cold. Um, it could be, they could be dehydrated if they've been working out on their own. Uh, yes, there's our symptoms of COVID-19, so that's something we have to consider as well. Um, so really, I guess what I was getting at is it's really a case-by-case -case basis. There's not really a clear uh, cookie cutter answer to that. I think the interesting thing is uh, a lot of the research now is showing that up to 40% of people who have COVID-19 don't even experience fevers. They have, they might have other symptoms. So we can't rely on just a temperature um, to decide if it is COVID-19 or if the symptoms are related to another health condition. Um, but I think, it, I think the collaboration is the huge piece uh, on that and just talking with your team physician to make that determination. It's like obviously if somebody has like one bout of diarrhea. We know diarrhea is not necessarily the most consistent symptom, although it's starting to, we're starting to see now that COVID-19 can impact the GI system more than we thought initially. Uh, but if they just have like one bout of diarrhea, we might ask them, hey, what'd you eat yesterday? Does that kind of food typically upset your stomach? Have you had any more episodes of diarrhea? And depending on how those conversations go, we might just ask them to remain home for the remainder of that day and the next day. And then if they stay asymptomatic, uh, for 48 hours, so two days, um, then we feel comfortable that they can return to campus and it was likely uh, just exposure to food that uh, upset their GI system. So it sounds like you're taking a more targeted approach, um, you know, because not every symptom, you know, I think one of the symptoms is muscle pain um, mm -hmm. and in sports medicine. I mean, how much do we deal with muscle pain? So mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's relative. And so understanding it's, it's medicine, you have to, you have, it's a, it's a puzzle. And so you're trying to figure out, okay, does this person need to be tested? It does this sound and look like COVID-19? Okay, then let's go get a test. So I think that's what sounds like what you guys are doing over there, which, which I think is great. So, yeah. And one other thing, so we, um, relative to kind of the atypical symptoms. So what we kind of think of is like the less distinct symptoms of COVID-19, which the CDC Kind of categorizes the the distinct or consistent symptoms and the ones that don't happen quite as often. So if we have someone who reports with atypical symptoms, uh, we obviously follow that 48-hour um, policy or if a better diagnosis can be made. So if within that 48 hours we decide, oh, your symptoms are um, your seasonal allergies, and then if we have them start taking their seasonal allergy medication, uh, and that clears their symptoms up, then our team physician can make the determination to allow them back into the facilities sooner than that two-day period. If a, if a better diagnosis can be made that's not contagious, 
Um, we have kind of that clause in our policy that doesn't restrict us to just holding people out for two or three days or 10 days if it is a suspected, obviously if it is a suspected case, they are gonna be out for 10 days, but if it's a little bit more in the murky waters of something like just uh, like DOMS or, or um, muscle ache and fatigue from a tough workout, uh, we're not restricted just holding people out for two days just because it's a potential symptom. If we can come up with a better diagnosis, uh, we will allow them to return sooner as long as it's safe to do so. Um, I know you talked about, um, you know, football, uh, a number of football uh, individuals back and men's and women's basketball at ISU being back. And we, you know, I think one of the biggest things like here in the state of Indiana, where um, the back on track Indiana plan <clears throat> and how it really kind of a phase process back into um, quote unquote, our normal lives. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk a little bit about um, maybe things that you've heard across the state or what you guys are going to be doing at ISU as far as phasing people back in uh, to athletics? Yeah, so uh, like I mentioned, everyone's going to have that two-week um, stay-at-home process prior to coming back into the athletics community. Uh, we're at, right now we're asking that to be if they're at their hometown, like back with parents or guardians or, or wherever they live when they're not at school, we're asking them to start that while they're at home. So seven days at home and then coming to campus a week before entering our facilities and then continuing that seven days at ISU. Then we obviously we also educate them on um, safe traveling measures. So if they have to stop and get gas, um, if you have gloves that you can wear while you're pumping gas, just because that can be a high traffic area, try to do that. Wear your face mask if you have to get out of your car and, in, and be around other people. Um, have access to hand sanitizer, things like that. Um, if they're flying, then um, there's obviously uh, specific uh, guidelines on how you should be um, managing uh, your activities after exposing yourself to others or if you're flying from a, an outbreak area um, and we take that into consideration uh, any international student athletes um, we ask them to come back to Terre Haute and then complete their stay at home 14 day stay at home process in Terre Haute uh, just because they have been out of the country um, but then after they've gone through that process uh, the first week that they're at ISU which is also part of that seven day um, the stay-at-home order in our local community here in Terre Haute. Uh, we have them come to campus, get their physical done. Um, it's a returner, they're doing a telemedicine returner physical because there's no need for uh, a physical encounter unless they have uh, a pre-existing injury that they still need clearance from. Um, they're receiving all of that patient education that we talked about before so that it's fresh in their mind uh, when they start using the facilities in a week. Um, and then our process right now for this summer, so like I said, this is our first week actually having student athletes uh, utilizing our facilities. Um, so we have pretty strict guidelines on number of individuals per facility. Um, so right now, like our weight room will only allow 12 individuals in the weight room at a time, uh, whereas at any given point during a, a more normal, um, I guess, period that we're living in, we would probably have upwards of uh, 50 to 60, maybe even 70 individuals in the weight room at once. So we're obviously cutting our numbers down quite a bit um, right now to respect 
social distancing and guidance from um, the CDC and OSHA on how many people you should have in a facility based on square footage or max capacity. Um, and then all of our actual athletic activities right now are non-contact and they're all individual um, workouts right now. Uh, and then when we start phase two, we'll start to allow individuals to work out uh, in small groups of no more than eight. And then in phase three, we'll start to allow um, a full, full practice and full contact to occur. Uh, and those, obviously those are, when I say phase one, two, and three, that's specific to ISU. So that's not the back on track Indiana plan. Um, that's our phasing process that we started here within our community. Um, and then when we get to the fall, then obviously we'll have fall sports starting to return as well. They'll go through the same um, processes uh, patients that had summer access opportunities, the football and both basketball teams. Um, and then we obviously have taken into consideration uh, what facilities aren't really necessary to use right now. So we're not allowing access to the locker rooms just because there's really no way to safely practice social distancing when you have um, lockers that are essentially next to each other. Those individuals can't social distance when their lockers are six inches apart. Um, so we're not allowing use of locker rooms right now. Uh, they just show up in their workout clothes um, and then leave for the day, come back in new clothes. Uh, we kind of using that process, rinse and repeat each day. Um, and then obviously we have increased sanitization policies that we're using right now. Everything has to be cleaned after its use and following um, contact times according to um, the EPA has a lot of information on um, how long each product needs to sit on a surface in order to kill um, the coronavirus. And then um, on top of cleaning things in between each use, we also have facility uh, maintenance coming in uh, regularly and cleaning entire facilities for us uh, to ensure that everything is as safe as possible for our student athletes. So it sounds like you guys have a really good plan of you know, returning people back to athletics, having a screening process, and then using um, your team physician to make the ultimate decision. Does this person need to be tested, um, a, a COVID-19 test? Let's say that um, you guys do all those things and the physician says, yes, let's get a test. Now we have COVID-19 tests. And let's say it's positive what are some considerations, uh, whether that's now or even, you know, during um, a student athlete's season, kind of returning, act, returning to activity once they've tested positive with a COVID-19 test? Yeah, so um, I'll try to make the answer as concise as possible. Um, so obviously they have to um, be at home for uh, the CDC guidelines, if they're diagnosed with COVID-19, it has to be uh, a minimum of 10 days from the time that their symptoms start. Um, they have to have gone three days without a fever uh, leading into that 10th day and their symptoms have to be, um, they have to have mild to no symptoms. So the CDC is saying um, you can have a mild call, cough uh, and no longer have shortness of breath. And that's kind of what the research is showing. Um, that your risk of continuing to, or your risk of still being uh, infectious and contagious um, has passed at that point. Um, so once that happens, uh, 
really it's going to come down to what the severity of their ailment was. So if they just had, um, like obviously we know healthy young individuals, their symptoms are usually less significant than older individuals or those that have comorbidities. So if they just had kind of like uh, one or two days of like like body fatigue and some muscle aches, if they had some they had headaches and maybe a fever for three or four days, um, we consider that to be uh, a mild case. Um, and once they are cleared from a medical standpoint, um, they, we will be implementing uh, a return to activity guideline in association with um, the NSCA and the CSCCA. So that those two strength and conditioning organizations put out a joint statement on uh, return to athletic activity um, following a, a period of inactivity. Uh, the, a lot of the research, uh, I was just reading this two weeks ago and I don't have it written down in front of me, but there's, there's a, a defined term uh, in the strength and conditioning world and the ACSM acknowledges it as well as uh, how many weeks of physical activity you have to do um, and how many days a week and how many minutes those sessions need to be to where you're considered a conditioned active individual. Um, I think it's three weeks of at least three to four days of exercise of at least 60 minutes. Um, so if they're only out for that 10 days, then technically they, they shouldn't be deconditioned if they've already been working out before that, but there should be still some level of, of systematic return to activity, even for someone who had very mild or minimal symptoms. Um, so that will be a collaboration between our strength and conditioning staff and our um, athletic training staff on returning them in an appropriate manner. Uh, now, somebody who um, has a more serious ailment, so let's say they had to go, they were hospitalized, um, their symptoms were very severe, they had chills, headaches, uh, muscle aches for multiple days, um, or if they were even intubated or on a ventilator, um, the research is actually showing that those individuals need uh, much more um, vetted uh, health care prior to returning to activity. So they need to go pretty much go through a full physical with their team physician or or a physician needs to do a physical with them once they've been cleared from COVID-19. Um, there might need to be considerations on them seeing a respiratory specialist uh, or a cardiovascular specialist because the research is starting to show that individuals who have a um, severe ailment from COVID-19 can actually have a significant amount of inflammation take place uh, in their respiratory and cardiovascular system. Um, they're seeing that some people are developing um, uh, cardiomyopathies or um, enlargements of the heart just from the, the excessive amount of inflammation that COVID-19 is causing to the body. Um, so if someone has a severe COVID-19 case, they honestly could be out of activity for uh, upwards to three to six months before they're back to um, their level of activity that they were before. I've talked with some colleagues about that and there's actually been some research done, uh, very minimal right now because we're only a few months into um, this uh, pandemic with COVID-19, but they're seeing that even elite athletes, if they were to have a significant ailment from COVID-19 and be ventilated or on an intubator or be intubated, um, that they could be out for up to six months just because of how much it sets them back from a, a respiratory and cardiovascular standpoint. And at that point, uh, they should have a, um, 
a good deal of workout workup done to make sure that their their body and their systems can handle the demands of the level of activity that they were conducting prior to um, becoming ill. So really, it just comes down to how sick they were, um, and then obviously in incorporating the members of the healthcare system that need to be included to help make that determination. So if we have someone with a severe case uh, here at ISU, outside of working with our team physician, we're likely going to include our uh, cardiologist that we use here in town just to ensure that there's been no significant inflammation of the cardiovascular symptom uh, systems, as well as uh, consulting with uh, respiratory specialists to ensure that uh, their lungs are um, have resolved uh, from the from the virus. I've seen actually some radiology imaging of what the lungs look like when someone is at like the peak of a coronavirus um, case, and it's it's really interesting to see how much fluid shows up even on uh, radiology imaging um, and how significantly impacted the lungs are uh, from this condition. So that's something we need to consider as well for individuals who might not. Um, who might have severe symptoms. So definitely a case by case, but obviously there's that stay at home for 10 days and then there's gonna obviously be some type of, you know, return to activity, whatever that may be, that's gonna be very different for each, um, each individual, which makes sense just like you're testing differently um, depending on the symptoms. So that's a, that's a great policy to have in place. Um, as far as uh, we kind of mentioned that kind of use of facilities, um, Again, each university and college is different. Some have one athletic training facility, some have five or six, or maybe they have one main one and a bunch of satellite facilities. Um, what are some recommendations um, that you have for keeping social distancing, keeping the facility clean, and kind of those things from an athletic training facility? Yeah, so I think the number one thing is, um, Within, our, within specifically our athletic training facilities where we're uh, delivering patient care. Uh, one, to start, uh, I think, and I, I don't like saying it because it sounds bad, but like the days of just kind of being available to help out with, uh, with like the general muscle soreness and, and like recovery from um, like a tough workout, like those kind of needs are likely not gonna be able to be met uh, in the current state that we're in, just because we can only see so many individuals like myself, like in a, in a normal situation, I might see four or five people at once. They might all have their own treatment table. Um, and some of them might be doing therapeutic exercise on their own while I'm, uh, doing manual therapy with somebody else, but we just can't simply have that many patients in the clinic at the same time right now. Um, so the days of people just coming into foam roll or stretch and kind of take care of like that general muscle soreness, like we kind of talked about earlier, um, we might not be able to accommodate those needs right now because we can really only be seeing people who have uh, what we deem as essential rehab. So someone who's either had an acute injury um, in the end stages of long-term rehab, a post-surgical patient, those are really the only things that we're able to see um, at the moment so that we can meet our capacity standards within our facilities um, and practice social distancing appropriately. Um, I think one way to help kind of navigate that and allow uh, the largest number of student athletes to receive care possible, um, it, and it's obviously a resource thing, but if you have other satellite facilities uh, in the college and university setting, a lot of times 
there will be like a small athletic training room or athletic training facility out at ba out at the baseball stadium or you might have obviously football a football stadium will have its own uh, facility where like pre-practice and pre-game needs are addressed um, we also have an indoor um, kind of indoor practice facility that um, track and baseball and softball use that has a satellite athletic training facility and then our basketball facility also has an athletic training uh, facility as well so we can kind of disperse our staff and work out of satellite facilities so that we can maximize the number of people that can be seen throughout the day um, so that's one consideration to make and then obviously um, following sanitization guidelines like we talked about before um, being very diligent about cleaning any exercise equipment so like when I'm working with a patient um, after they might if they've used like an ankle weight or a TheraBand or if we've done um, any Graston or anything like that, all of the tools or all of the modalities and interventions and exercise equipment that I've used, I kind of keep it in a pile um, so that I can clean it at the end of working with that individual and make sure that it's safe for the next person to use um, and just make sure everybody knows like, hey, don't, don't use this with another patient until I've had a chance to clean it at the end of uh, my rehab session with this individual. Um, and then also we have to consider our guidelines within our facilities, which we kind of hinted to uh, when I talked about like the weight room only being able to hold a certain number of individuals. Um, so we've actually built a satellite weight room um, within our basketball facilities so that they can work out in a separate or they can um, strength train in a separate facility from football. Um, just because of the, how large the football population is, they need the facility pretty much the entire day in order to work in their small, uh, work out in their small pods of individuals. So we have kind of built our own weight room for men's and women's basketball. And then in the fall, it will also be used by uh, soccer and volleyball as they return to campus as well. So that we're kind of um, keeping populations away from one another. If there were to be an outbreak, that's kind of the one way that we could contain it within a sport and not have the entire athletic population impacted. Because um, if we're all using the same facility, that could be jeopardizing everyone's health instead of a small number of individuals. Yeah, that's a great point. I was just thinking about, you know, possibly building, obviously not a building, right? Um, but making other satellite things. I was just thinking, um, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, people that have graduated are, you know, using those pop-up tents, you know, kind of heavy-duty things, and you can put walls on it, kind of like we do at uh, marathons um, at the post-race. You know, you could have something like that, and each sport could kind of have their own thing. Um, also, it being outside might even be a little bit safer, too, um, as well. So that's just maybe uh, my little recommendation is, you know, build those satellite facilities, build, have pop-up tents where you can have your medical supplies, but also have walls so it's still private as well. So yeah, some great recommendations there. Thanks, Connor. Um, one thing I think um, think will be interesting with the college and universities uh, will be when you're traveling um, and you're going to different universities, um, you know, not only is it you're traveling in a bus together, uh, but you're also staying at a hotel. Um, you know, in some universities, you know, they they put four guys in or four girls in a, in a, in a single room, you know, with only two queen size beds, you know, so maybe some, if, if you guys have talked about that or any considerations from a, a travel standpoint, the bus, the hotel, and then interacting with another, or with another competitor. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a topic. Um, obviously we can, we can all kind of have some 
notions right now about how we think things are going to go, but uh, ultimately there's still a lot of, of uncertainties and questions that um, can't be answered well by the research just yet, and I'll kind of get into those as we're talking. I've got a, a few notes here, so if you see me looking away from the camera, I'm just making sure that, that I don't miss anything on this topic. Um, but I actually had a pretty impactful conversation with uh, Ralph Reef about a week or two ago, um, and he was saying that it wouldn't really surprise him if um, if we see athletic events canceled like the day of competition or the day prior to competition just because someone starts to, to develop symptoms. It's like, for example, if, if I'm traveling with men's basketball this fall, let's say we have a Saturday game, we get to the hotel on Friday night, somebody starts getting sick as soon as we get to the hotel. And if it's severe symptoms that are pretty consistent with COVID-19, uh, how do we determine if everyone is sick because we've been on the same bus together or we've been on the same flight together, if it's a, a longer trip. Um, so there's going to be a lot of difficult conversations that I think are going to occur um, relative to uh, those kind of things on the road. And I think that also leads into the whole idea of um, like what kind of obligation do we have uh, to another athletic community. So I know our conference right now is having conversations between uh, the directors of sports medicine and the athletic directors trying to develop um, a policy on what information uh, each team is going to be or each institution is going to be responsible for providing to another institution. So for example, um, am I going to be re required to disclose, maybe not disclose specific names, uh, but let's say, um, for example, that Indiana State's playing Ball State in November, uh, am I going to be required to disclose to uh, Troy, their, uh, the athletic trainer at Ball State, and to their institution that we've had two or three people that have had symptoms? Will I be responsible for um, disclosing that we've had a diagnosed case, but they've been put into court or they've been put into isolation and uh, disclosing who else they've been in close contact with? Um, just a lot of things that are going to have to be decided between now and then in order to ensure that we're all uh, keeping our student athletes as safe as possible. Um, I think another important conversation to have is really we don't know uh, how safe traveling is going to be right now. When, when you think about like football, for example, you put uh, 40 or 50 kids on a bus, but for a football team, you need two or three buses in order to get to where you want to go. Um, and you can't really practice social distancing on a bus unless you're gonna increase your number of buses to six or seven. Uh, and not every athletic department's gonna be able to afford to do something like that. Um, so I think we're really gonna need a lot more guidance uh, between now and in August and September on um, is, wearing a is wearing a face covering enough on a bus um, that's circulating the same air um, to keep everyone on that bus safe for a four-hour bus ride or a five-hour bus ride if they're, uh, maybe everyone needs to wear a certain kind of face covering that um, can filter the air better, or maybe buses are going to have to have uh, a better ventilation system. Uh, I don't really have the answers to all that because I don't think that's really my expertise area where I can shed a lot of light, but really, I mean, an ideal world would be um, that there's some level of immunity established by then, which I think we're still quite a few months away from that, or a vaccination, which obviously we know, uh, looking at the history of 
of the human race, it's, it usually takes three to four years to develop a successful vaccine, and we're only six or seven months into uh, COVID-19 right now. But I think the hope would be since everyone in the world right now is focusing on a vaccine for this virus, that maybe we'll get it sooner than three years from when it first uh, impacted our society. Um, but yeah, road trips are going to be very interesting this fall. Um, I think it's going to take a lot of communication. I think it's going to be important for universities to communicate with one another. Uh, I think using an honor system is going to be very important that we're not just trying to um, brush little things under the dust. I don't think people would necessarily do that, but obviously like this is now going to be my fourth year providing sports medicine uh, with division one basketball. And obviously in the past people will play with um, head colds and, and common colds and things like that. Uh, you, you'll hear stories about people who play with stomach flu sometimes. Like I think the days of doing that really need to be uh, reevaluated. And is that really going to be safe for us to do right now? Like, yeah, maybe from an individual standpoint, like it's, it's safe for someone to play if they have diarrhea. I mean, you have to think about the dehydration factor. Um, and then if the, if their diarrhea is caused by something contagious and I'm talking about prior to 2020. Um, but I think going into this upcoming season, we're going to have to be a lot more strict on, um, what symptoms we allow people to play with. Uh, and I think it's going to be difficult because I think within athletics, we're all used to a certain level of, of navigating things and, and, and knowing what level of, of risk it's okay to put someone at. And obviously when I say risk, I'm talking about like considering the amount of dehydration from someone that has diarrhea, but no other symptoms, but like knowing that di diarrhea is a symptom of COVID-19, maybe the days of letting somebody play with, with having diarrhea leading up to a game that those days might not be uh, a thing anymore, or at least this upcoming athletic season, we'll just have to see. So I'm going to ask a, um, maybe a tough question, a big question here. Um, obviously, um, I know that you don't have the, the golden answer here, um, but my question with all the screening, with COVID-19 testing, I mean, we still need to just truly be testing the people that true have true, true symptoms uh, with the possibility of you may arrive at a hotel on a Friday and the game on Saturday is canceled. So now all of that money is, is washed. And now you just took a bunch of people to a different state um, and traveled. And so I guess my big question here is, are sports worth it to play this fall? Yeah. And uh, obviously, like I said before, like a lot of this, this is all my views and my views only. Um, and we haven't really had those those specific conversations uh, in great detail at ISU. Um, I think part of that is because the state of Indiana has been uh, trending in a, in a pretty good direction um, since early May. And obviously we're starting to see some of these um, states in the South and, and the West and the East Coast that are starting to have uh, either a, a return of, of increased cases or they're having their increased trends for the first time. Um, so I think those conversations are going to start to happen, especially with everything coming out relative to larger institutions. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people have seen like uh, the Clemsons and the Texas Techs and the Houstons that have had uh, a dozen or so positive cases when they've come back to campus and they've had to 
either discontinue workouts indefinitely as they decide how to uh, phase back in again. Um, but I think it all leads to the question of like, are is athletics going to happen in the fall? Um, like you like you asked me, and um, I think if we're talking about it from from a standpoint of um, of the individual, I think we can do a lot of things to protect an individual's safety, but I think it's going to come at a great deal of financial expense. And I think some schools are going to be able to uh, support that financial expense and some aren't. So I think it, I think it's going to be, unfortunately, I think um, part of it's going to come down to, to what can be feasibly provided. Uh, I, I think a lot of it's going to depend on um, how the first couple weeks go in the fall. I think, I think we're going to continue to uh, make a push towards uh, having athletics during the 2020-2021 season, but I think it's really going to come down to how the first couple weeks go. Um, if something alarming happens, I think it's going to start to raise a lot of flags for people. Uh, and I guess by alarming, I mean if there's a large outbreak or if a couple games have to get postponed because of outbreaks, um, I think it's going to start to raise a lot of eyebrows within society and the athletics community. Um, I'm very hopeful that we as a society can do our part uh, and we can safely allow student athletes to do what they love. Um, and that's, that's regardless of uh, the amount of revenue that's generated through sport, the sporting industry. I just, I just would love to see student athletes be able to do uh, the thing that they're passionate about and do that safely. Um, so I'm hopeful that we can continue to have good uh, policies in place across each institution. And I think each of us have an obligation to do the right thing. Um, whether that's holding one person out longer than we typically would if they have what seems to be pretty consistent symptoms with just a general head cold or the common cold and treating it like it could be COVID-19. Um, I think we each have a duty to do something like that uh, and, and really just vet things very thoroughly more so than we have in the past uh, in order to, uh, one, not only keep everyone safe, but also um, have the largest amount of success that we can. I know I kind of I kind of walked around the bush a little bit, uh, but I think my answer is that I think I think we can I think we can have athletics this fall as long as we all do it the right way. Um, and I just hope that if if things do um, get to the point where it, it doesn't seem like everyone's health and safety can be um, reasonably maintained, uh, that everyone is at least going to be understanding to the fact that. Uh, modifications are being made out of the best interest of the individual um, and that it doesn't just come down to a, to a dollar's standpoint. No, um, that's a great answer. I, I have no idea, you know, I'm with you. I just, you know, you want to see people enjoy what they want to do and, and, and things that they love to do. And, um, but it is hard. It's um, who knows where this is going to go. And um, so we'll, I think it's kind of a wait and see, but again, I think, making sure we have best policies, be ready to respond. And I think athletic trainers, sports medicine professionals are, are really highly equipped to respond and, and kind of go things with the flows. I think we'll be really good there. Um, I don't have any other questions. I didn't know if maybe you had any other recommendations or thoughts for athletic trainers, other sports medicine professionals um, that provide care to the college and university setting. Yeah, I've got, I've got two things that I wanted to touch on just to wrap up um, if we didn't talk about them specifically. And then I, obviously um, 
I'm happy to have you uh, tie in my contact information into the presentation, uh, whether it's in the text box below the video or, or whatever works best on your end. I'm happy to answer any questions people might have. Um, but the first thing that I want to just leave with everyone is um, if you haven't already started writing policy or you don't have all your policies and procedures written, I just wanted to give a quick uh, summary of, of some different policies that you should maybe consider having uh, within your sports medicine staff just to help ensure the safety of, of your athletics community that you provide care to. Um, so, and obviously a lot of these things we've talked about, but I think it's important to have a policy on uh, your daily screening process and what that's going to look like um, and the procedures that you take when you have anyone that has an affirmative answer, uh, meaning that they either report having symptoms or being exposed or not practicing uh, appropriate social distancing, um, having a contact tracing policy in place that your staff knows what questions they're going to ask everyone um, and who who's considered a close contact and who needs to be contacted. Um, I think it's important to have a policy that at least denotes um, who is on your COVID-19 task force. Uh, so here at ISU, um, we have a long, a very encompassing task force of individuals who, are, who have been helping write all of our policies. Uh, so different groups on your campus that you might need to think of would include uh, university legal counsel, uh, university leadership, um, student housing or residence life um, from the standpoint of uh, one, are they going to be, is the university going to be offering any um, designated isolation or quarantine areas and how does, how can athletics work their policies into that? Um, obviously you need athletics administrators involved in, in the policy development. Uh, I think academics needs to be involved in some capacity um, as, a, as someone who's suspected or diagnosed, it's going to impact their academic experience at the university. Um, the university facilities department needs to be included because they can help a lot with um, either redesign of facilities for ease of, of use during these restrictions that we have and also cleaning measures. Uh, you should consider having any behavioral health services on campus uh, involved in policy writing as well. Uh, and then also environmental safety are, is another group or risk management is another group of individuals to consider having involved in your uh, policy and procedure drafting. Um, obviously it's important to have a very systematic phasing process local to your institution that also uh, at least meets the, the guide, at minimum meets the guidelines of um, the, state, um, the state reopening process. And then, like I said earlier, we're actually being more conservative and, and starting and staying one phase behind the states so that we can proactively see how the trends are going across the state as things open up more and more. Um, you should have a COVID-19 management policy and procedure, which should be um, at minimum reviewed by a team physician so that they're comfortable with how uh, a COVID-19 case will be managed within the university. Ours was actually written by our team doctor because um, he just wanted to make sure that it was uh, as, as thorough as possible. Um, you should have a policy on how you're identifying at-risk individuals uh, within your organization prior to coming back to campus. Uh, the one that I didn't think about, um, but we had a staff member write this up a couple weeks ago, uh, everyone should consider having a staff contingency plan. Uh, so obviously we're doing all of this that we can uh, to keep our student athletes safe, but there's also a certain risk that, our, that the sports medicine staff can get sick as well. Um, and you should have a plan in place for how um, your staff will uh, reorganize itself in the event that someone were to get sick. 
So for example, we have it written up that if I were to uh, contract the coronavirus and I was, or I was a suspected, or I was a close contact and I had to be out for 14 days, uh, we have identified who three individuals would be from our staff who uh, have a, a lower patient load right now that could uh, fulfill my duties for me while I'm on sick leave. So that's something that I think universities need to consider right now as well. Um, having policies on facility cleaning and operations is also um, important to have too. Um, so that was all I had really relative to uh, policies. Obviously, that was just kind of reading off what the policy should be. It's not really getting into the nitty gritty of what each one should look like, but I think this last part can kind of help uh, with that. And I just wanted to kind of throw out the different organizations um, that are providing guidance on developing policy in the COVID-19 era. Um, so obviously the one that's been probably referenced the most so far today is the CDC, uh, and they're gonna be offering a lot of uh, guidance on, on how we, um, one, prevent and two, manage COVID-19. I think OSHA is another good one that athletic trainers should be reviewing the guidance that they have on their website right now relative to COVID-19 and how to properly set up facilities. Um, the NATA and NCAA have um, good recommendations and guidelines. Um, obviously, our local state Department of Health and your local county Department of Health are going to have information that you should use when you're looking at trends and if you can advance through your phases within your institution. Um, the American College of Health Associations, they actually released a statement on the reopening of uh, institutions of higher education. Um, so that's more general to the entire university, but I think there's good information in there. Um, that sports medicine staffs can use, and then also uh, American College of Sports Medicine and the National Strength and Conditioning Association will have resources relative to um, returning to uh, athletics following a period of inactivity um, that I think is important as you mitigate any, um, any uh, physical ailments relative to deconditioned athletes returning to athletics too soon. So those are some of the uh, organizations that I just wanted to highlight for individuals to look to, to, to gain further guidance. Also want to throw out there that the IATA ha has some resources on our homepage. Um, if you go to the IATA website, right on the very top, um, there's a COVID-19 uh, tab, click on it. There's a variety of resources, no matter the college university second, setting, uh, secondary school, maybe you're owning running your own business. There's a variety of resources in there for uh, individuals to check out. Um, Connor, I kind of want to shift gears just a little bit here um, and talk about your involvement uh, with the IATA, IATA as the Development Committee Chair. Um, so I wonder if you could let the listeners know what the Development Committee does and your responsibilities within the IATA. Yeah, so thanks, Dan. I appreciate you highlighting that as well. Um, so my my involvement with the IATA um, being the development chair or development committee chair now is um, a large part of what I do is to help um, develop strong relations with uh, outside organizations and corporations um, so that we can acquire um, corporate partnerships and have um, kind of some mutually beneficial relationships with other uh, corporations and organizations that might either offer products that support the sports medicine industry um, or um, 
healthcare systems that want to continue to support the sports medicine industry and athletic training. Um, so what that does is that helps us um, drive um, dollars back to the association that we can use to further fund member benefits. Uh, so trying to develop um, a good robust list of sponsors um, so that one, we can uh, have ourselves as athletic trainers uh, advertised and advocated more, but then also generate um, funding that we can use to then provide uh, you all as the members with additional member benefits. Um, also working on uh, different initiatives to help increase benefits that members have, um, whether it be uh, developing additional member benefits with discounts to certain um, suppliers of sports medicine materials or some things that we're starting to work on, uh, nothing finalized yet. Um, working on um, really any ways that, that what we do within other corporations can benefit you all as the members. So I also work with our um, like membership committee and uh, have been involved a little bit with the Young Professionals Committee here doing some things relative to um, COVID-19, like with this podcast series that we can really just help empower our members as much as possible to feel comfortable uh, navigating any um, any tough situations that we might face within sports medicine and, and working in the healthcare system. Great, thank you. And then any listeners out there that are members of the IATA or even sports medicine professionals in general, if you have any questions um, or if you're looking to be involved within the IATA, um, you can go again to our website um, if you go under committees tab, uh, Connor Burton, uh, if you just click on his name under the development committee, that's his email. So you can get in contact with him. Uh, my name's on there, but um, anyone within the IAT leadership or any of the committee chairs would be more than happy. I know we're always looking for people to volunteer, whether you have a couple hours a month or if you're looking to get more involved, uh, we would be glad to have you and, and be involved within the IATA. So it's just my little plug there for the IATA and hope to see a lot more members be involved and hope um, everyone enjoyed this podcast. Any uh, last words, thoughts, Connor? Uh, no, no new, no new information. Just want to say uh, thank you for the, your time today and uh, I appreciate all the listeners at home. Uh, I know this is obviously a very challenging time and a very unique time for all of us. Um, and I think the best thing we can do right now is really uh, work as a collective unit, even if we don't work under the same um, university umbrella. Um, we all work under the same uh, professional umbrella and I think we can help each other, um, empower each other to be the best that we can be during these tough times. So like Dan and I have both said, I'm happy to, to talk with anyone and everyone about any questions or um, maybe that a little bit more things specific to the situation you're in within your institution. Uh, I'd be happy to find some time to chat about that because um, we we can probably learn something from each other. Connor, thank you so much for joining me on the IATA podcast today. Thanks, Dan. Thank you all for listening to part two of our COVID-19 pandemic series on returning to sports. Hope all of our listeners have enjoyed the podcast today, and we hope you subscribe and rate our podcast on the podcast platform form that you are listening from. Thank you for listening to the Indiana Athletic Trainers Association podcast hosted by the Young Professionals Committee. The IATA would like to thank elite sponsor, 
Methodist Sports Medicine, and bronze sponsors, Ultra Ankle and Myotech. Be sure to follow the IATA on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for information on any upcoming events.